My name is Matt Moberg. If this is your first time through, welcome. I hope that it is a edifying experience for you. Hope that it warms you up. Hope that you are happy to be here. What we do at this portion of the program is we go through a little bit of the scripture. And so even though it is dangerously, absurdly cold and nasty outside, we're going to keep on keeping it on doing that. Is that okay? Okay. Scripture tonight is from John 2. And uh, we're going to be looking at 1 through 11. Probably won't get through the whole thing. But as a reminder, we are in the season of Epiphany right now. The season of Epiphany is the season post-Christmas, pre-Easter. And the idea is that in this season, we are experiencing who God is, who God has always been. Epiphany is often associated with the idea of a light coming on. A light does not produce something new, but it reveals what has always been there. I think I've said that every time. And we'll continue to do so. John 2 is where we are going to go tonight. And it reads like this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mom was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. It's worth noting that Jesus' mother did not say to him, hey, could you make a liquor store run, or could you whip up a new batch of Cabernet. She does what all mothers have always done and use passive aggressive parenting because she knows it's the most effective way. Do you think I'd be going to Florida if I didn't get a text from my mom saying it'd make me very sad if you guys weren't here. She's not going to directly ask me to come, but okay, not about me though. <laughs> Keep going, Matt. Woman, why do you involve me? That's quite the response there, Jesus. Can you imagine if I, if Lauren tonight, later tonight, if I come home and Lauren's putting the kids to bed and she says, hey, could you lend me a hand? And I said, woman, why do you involve me? Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replies, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Jesus and Mary are having this moment here where Mary comes up to him. And she approaches him expressing a need. She speaks to her son and then she speaks to her servants or to these servants. And one of the questions that I think we ought to ask when we're looking at a text like this is why is Mary so bothered in the first place? Like why is she speaking up right now? This is not her wedding, so it shouldn't be her worry. This isn't her problem. One of the answers perhaps is understanding a little bit of the context involved in this moment. Now, this is a wedding in uh, 2,000 years ago in Cana. Weddings at this time were a big deal. Not that they're not now. Weddings are still a big deal. I understand that. I get the labor that goes into it. I get the money involved. But in a world that is uh, pre-YouTube and pre-Netflix and before uh, people found out that Tide Pods were fun things to eat, before like fun was an accessible thing to partake in, weddings were a very big deal. Deal. These were not your dine and dance and then ditch affairs. They were seven-day celebrations. Seven-day celebrations, unless, of course, the wine ran out before the seven days were fulfilled. If the wine that was supposed to be provided by the host came short, if you could not have a wine that was big enough, that the supply was large enough to actually make it for the seven days, that would be one of the most shameful things that could be cast upon you and your family. In fact, so shameful was that, that actually what legally, the mother of the bride, or the, yeah, the mother of the bride, 
could take you to court, the host, if you failed to provide adequate amount of wine. That's how big of a deal it was. That's why Debbie doesn't sit by my mom anymore because she knows that if that wedding this summer, if things don't go well and her and Steve don't supply enough wine, my people will see their people in court. That's how this thing will shake down. It was a very big deal. And so Mary is watching this party going on, this raging. It says it's day three at this point. And her anxiety is building up because the wine is about to be out. We're down to the last drop. And as absurd as this story may seem, as foreign as that context may be, it also feels a little bit familiar. I watched a film a few weeks ago. Tell me if you guys have seen this. Fire Festival. Wow, round of applause, okay. <laughs> Didn't expect that, that's great, super. Uh, watch this film, if you have yet to see it, go home and watch it on Netflix. If you don't have Netflix, let me catch you up to speed real quick. Um, this is a story about the greatest party that never happened, a.k.a. the greatest mess that any millennial has ever made. <laughs> Billy McFarlane, the boy on the right, and my mentor growing up, Ja Rule on the left, they came together with this classic idea that we're going to give people a combo platter of experience. Not only are we going to provide great uh, music and a great uh, uh, food, we're also going to put it on like this luxury island. Like top of the line, top to bottom, everything is amazing. That was the concept. And they went out and they sold it. And they did really well. They hired like top models, top social media influencers, anybody that could start hyping this thing up to make it really burst out of the ticket office. And it did. Within 48 hours, the thing was completely sold out. Every ticket to the festival had been booked. And these are not cheap tickets. The high-end packages to get into a festival like the Fire Festival range between $12,000 and $250,000. Now, you might be asking, okay, $250,000, a price tag like that. What kind of musicians might be justifying something like that? Was it, was it Bob Dylan? No, it was not Bob Dylan. Was it Beyonce? It had to be at least Beyonce, but it wasn't. It was actually Blink-182, as you'd expect, <laughs> who apparently... <laughs> is still a band. I had no idea. <laughs> but people are paying $250,000. And if you think that's the worst part about this story so far, brace yourself. Because hearing that Blink-182 would be playing at this festival is as close as anybody got to actually hear Blink, hearing Blink-182 play at this festival. Nothing actually went down. The whole thing was a mess. And they weren't just off by a few things. It was a complete disaster. Upon showing up, the people had expected to be greeted at the airport by stretched limos and fancy uh, cars with models coming out the doors and holding the doors for them. Instead, they were all crowded inside of this school bus, which was so old that at one point when the driver came to a hill, he made everybody get out so they could actually get the bus up the hill. Uh, they were expecting luxury villas, but by the time they actually showed up, they had disaster relief tents. Now, the best thing, the most thing that people were most excited about was the uh, five-star meals coming from the five-star chefs. But you can imagine their surprise when they got there. And all they had was this styrofoam box with a couple pieces of bread, a few slices of cheese, and some lettuce. Now, what's really interesting is that when this documentary came out, people were like uh, in uproar over the food that was actually provided. And... The Fire Festival Twitter account, they broke two years of silence to rush to their defense by saying, 
Nobody ever mentions this, but there was actually a really good cake the locals made for dessert to go with this sandwich. As if all of a sudden all of these critiques are completely irrational. It makes no sense. If you watch this film, if you go home and take this in tonight, in, in the upcoming Polar Vortex, this is how you want to spend your time, you'll find that it is completely bizarre, completely absurd, completely fascinating, and yet you may also find that there's one moment in, in, it in particular that is very familiar, or at least it was for me. It is this moment here, where you see all the people who are um, overwhelmed, angry, furious, and then you see Billy McFarlane climbing up on, side of a tr on top of a truck where he recognizes for perhaps the first time that he cannot supply what he had sold, that he cannot provide an experience that was reflected in the people's expectations, that his wine had completely run out, that he had nothing left to offer him. I watched that part right there and I was, you know, I was, I was fascinated with the whole thing, but when I got to that point, it was something else. I thought that's my greatest fear right there. That's the thing that probably keeps me up more than anything else. See, I find familiar, not because I, I've ever thrown a festival with Ja Rule or because I've ever had any friends that have spent more than $25, let alone $250,000 to hang out with me for a weekend. It's not because of that that I find familiarity in it. But I do know what it's like to feel the agonizing fear of not having what I'm supposed to have and not being able to provide what people have come to pick up. See, there is this fear that I think we're all familiar with because I think we talk about it a lot, but there is the fear of stepping out, of taking a leap, of trying something new. Whether it's a new job, a new relationship, a new, a new reality of any kind, there is that fear, there is that initial stage that can be very scary. And I knew that. I knew that that initial stage was going to be very scary. But I didn't know that this stage would be scarier. I'm talking about this stage here where it's not about whether or not you're going to have tickets that will sell. It's about whether or not the tickets will continue to sell. It's not about whether you're actually going to make it. It's about whether or not you can maintain it. It's that anxiety that comes with not wondering whether or not someday you will run into success. It's that anxiety that comes with wondering if you're going to run out once you get there. Whether you can actually keep the good thing going. Whether you can, can, can continue. Oh my gosh. Thank Anna's like, you can do it. <laughs> keep trying. That's why I have you sit where you sit. But that fear of like, can I actually keep this thing up? Now that expectations have been heightened, the bar has been raised, whatever language you want to use, do you know what I'm speaking of when I say that? I tell you this, I think it's one of the reasons why I put as much time as I do into, into thinking about sermons and studying texts and whatnot. I mean, if you were to ask me on a podcast or a TV show or something like that, I might say, well, Christ gave his all and so we should give our all too. And I suppose part of that is definitely true. But for me, it's I work hard on my sermons because I don't want to end up standing on that truck. There is this egotistical, egocentric side of me that says that if I do not provide for you what you came in here expe expecting, then you're going to find out that my wine has all ran out and you go, you'll go look for a full barrel elsewhere. I think about that with ministry. 
I think about that fear with music. We had this letter from our publishers uh, three weeks ago that said that we've been on over 800 television, show, television shows now, our music. Don't applaud or anything. It's not my greatest achievement in life. I don't know why you'd be excited about it. Just because they're classic family shows like Naked and Dating and Bad Girls Club. Really good stuff. Uh, um, surprised you guys haven't heard it. But we got that letter and I was very excited to go and make some more music. Like maybe we're getting some traction now and whatnot. And, uh, so I went down to my basement and we built up this little studio here. Where we got your basic mics, pop screens, keyboards, whatnot. The problem is that I sat down on my computer and I clicked record and then I sat down on my keyboard to write a song and I recognized that there were no melodies that were crossing my mind. And immediately the panic started to come over me once again. Is the last song that I wrote going to be the last song that I'll ever write? Has the juice now fully been squeezed? Do I have nothing left to offer? I could name for you on the spot right now about 28 different areas in my life where I, I, I'm terrified of being, having them run out, of them drying up. I'm coming down to the last few drops. How many spots do you have? When you think about your life, what are you running on that you are scared that you might be running out of? So one of the ways that I've identified it for me that I can even tell you 27 because I actually went through the process of trying to name it is that I think about what are the questions that come up in me before I go into spaces like this? What are the questions that come up in me? So some of the questions that I wrote down were things like, will they stay if I don't have what they need? Will they stick around if I can't be who they need? If I'm not funny enough, will they still find me to be enough? If I don't take on all of their crap, if I don't present myself as just their dumping grounds where I can take on all of their drama, will they still take me on as a friend? What if I stop showing up at all the places I don't want to be at, but I feel like I should be at? What will they do then? What if I start showing up at all the places with the people that I want to be with, and yet the people I've been told I can't be with? What will they do then? What will they do when my wine runs out? Where will they all go when what they thought I could provide I no longer am willing to put up with? What will they do when I discover that the wine that brought them in is the wine that's keeping me out? And that's a price that I'm unwilling to pay any longer. You see, what's interesting about this text is that um, there's this moment where Mary comes and expresses the dire circumstances at hand. The wine is drying up. And you're going to need to do something about it immediately. Jesus doesn't do something about it immediately. We know how the story goes. We know that Jesus, as, as he eventually he does turn the water into the wine. But he first lets the moment go dry for a second. He lets the final drip drop. He lets the scarcity be stepped in. The greatest fear is fully realized. He allows for the host to climb up on the truck and feel the weight of it all. The worst thing that could have happened did happen. You didn't provide what the people expected. And Jesus allows that to happen. And I'm so grateful that he did. I'm so grateful that Jesus lets us run out of what we are running on so that we can finally see that we are not here to run in the first place. We're not here to run in the first place. 
I had the rare opportunity a couple weeks ago to uh, do a conference call with a group of NBA coaches. And they were talking about the grind of the middle of the season and how much all the expectations that are on them, the weight of the pressures, the constantly feeling like you need to be up on that truck providing for people, but you don't have what it takes. And never in my life have I felt more compelled and reminded to be a reminder that their central task, our central task, my central aim and task in life is not production, it's not performance, it is participation in what God has already provided. There's nothing to prove, there's nothing to produce, there's no dance that needs to be danced, there's no dazzle that needs to be dished out. Our central job is not to run, it's to rest, it's to receive, it's to rejoice. The aim is joy. The aim is celebration. But the new wine can't come in until we let the old wine fully dry up. Until we let the last drip drop. Only in that space right there can we see how good it's always been. And I know this to be true because of Jesus, the way that he makes the wine is very interesting. You'll see in this text right here the way that John goes about writing it. There's a central truth here that Jesus wants to express. John makes note, John goes out of his way to let the reader know that the six stone water jars from which the water would turn into wine, they were there for a purpose. They were there for ceremonial washing, each of them holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, if you understand the scripture, you understand back in Leviticus that the, the idea of physical cleansing actually impacted spiritual realities. This was not symbolic. This was literal. This was their understanding of how it worked. So think about that in this context here. What does that tell you? They have ceremonial cleansing water in the room for them. Before the water is turned into wine, it is already wine. It's already being used in the same way that wine was used. In the same way that the host would use wine to make sure that people stayed in the room, people were using this water to ensure that God would stay in the room, that they would be clean enough for God so that God could come close. So think about these two anxieties that are present in this place right here. You have the fear that if the wine runs out, the people are going to dip. And you have also the fear that if we don't have any water, then God's going to be gone. Jesus sees these two fears and he dries them both up in one spot. To the people who are hosting the party. To the people who are anxiously trying to figure out how do I perform, how do I provide, how do I be everything that everybody needs, how do I do this dance that is keeping me from joy, but it's keeping them satisfied. How do I do this thing that's going to keep them in the room? Jesus says, you can't. But the drinks are on me. I'll take this one. And then to the people at the party who are dancing, who are enjoying the little bit of wine that they have left, who are filled to the brim with anxiety over whether or not God is actually for them, especially in this time here, which was known as an age of silence. Jesus takes away their one tool that they had to convince themselves that they were enough for God to say that you have always been enough. And your participation is being prevented because of your performance. And you need to produce whether it's your need to pour more wine or wash more hands, it's keeping you from actually seeing the good news and stepping into the story for yourself. 
And so Jesus takes the water and he lets the wine completely drain out. And what might that look like if he did the same for you? I think I've shared this before, but I'll close with this idea. Um, I had a moment with my therapist last year at some point where I was talking about me and Lauren and um, talking about just what are your greatest fears in your relationship? What are the things that, uh, you know, do you have any concerns of any kind? And this is in the context of the conversation when we'd already gone through the depths a lot. And when she asked me, though, what is your greatest fear, I knew what it was exactly. Yeah, I said, I said to her, I said, uh, my greatest fear is that Lauren doesn't need me. And when she figures that out, she's going to leave. Like when she figures out that I have nothing to offer her, that she's fine without me, she's going to bounce. Deborah said, so what are you going to do about that? I'm going to keep making more wine. Keep finding new ways to produce something that's going to dazzle her, wow her, warm her, re-romance her, whatever it's going to take to keep her in the room. Because that's what I feel like I need to do because she doesn't need me. Went home and talked with Lauren about it. And Lauren let the wine drop out. She said, you're right, I don't need you. But I want you. That's what it is, I want you. And there's something about Lauren saying that she wanted me that allowed me to want myself. Allowed me to actually enter into the story for myself where I could put my hands down and stop washing them and put the bottles away and thinking I need to keep pouring wine. My prayer for us as a community is that we would see that there is nothing that we have to produce. There is nothing that we have to provide because we serve a God who is already the provider. And the more time and energy that we spend on performing and production and doing the dance and singing the song, putting on the show, it keeps us from the good news ever entering in. The last drip has to drop for the good wine to finally come. Pray with me, please. God, you are good. God, you are faithful. Lord, we are grateful that you are the provider, that you are the source of joy, God. Lord, we're sorry that we often think that we need to be the source of joy and that we need to do all the providing. We're grateful that we don't, God. You offer us freedom. Give us the courage to actually say yes to that invitation. In Christ's name we all pray. Amen. I think the, the fear of uh, providing and performing and, and being all to everyone is something that we certainly all experience. It's, it's the culture we live in. That's what I love about this story, though, is the reminder that actually ultimately it isn't about us that it is about a God who loves us, about a God that we belong to, a God that says that, yes, we are enough, as is. And that God uses us in, in all sorts of ways. But one of the things that Matt said that struck me was this idea that um, God is in the house. God's always in the house. And we love and we worship this God who said, come to me all those who are weary and I will give you rest because when we're trying to perform and excel and please 
and always provide, we get worn out. But we're reminded on Sunday nights when we gather together, we don't need to do any of that. We just need to show up and be present to God and one another and be reminded that we're enough. We are enough. So on Sunday nights when we gather, we get to remind each other of that when we take part in communion together. And on the night before Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When we eat this, remember me. I'm enough. And likewise, he took wine and he poured it into the cup. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. And that's what we do. We take bread and we dip it into the cup and we remember that God is enough. And we get to do that together. So during the music, we invite you to come forward and do just that. There'll be gluten-free elements in the front, gluten-full on the sides, and you can take that bread and dip it into the cup. So please stand, and together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, 